I think we'll, oh, oh one last one, okay. question? <laughs> you hear it on the other side? No. no. She was saying that some, often after she sits, she uh, essentially um, doesn't feel like, uh, you, you said, I don't feel like going back into life. Yeah. But, but we, we might say going back into your everyday life, yeah. particularly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good to keep the distinction. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and wh- whether there were any, uh, basically, tricks for um, transition. Um, well, you know, our long-term intention is to have whatever was touched that feels rich or nourishing, whether it's the peace or the calm or the understanding or the open heart or the openness. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk more about this related to the, to the talk, but our long-term aim is to have those qualities more and more in our daily lives. And, and yet it can feel like a, uh, a big difference or that it's hard to know how to do that or it's hard to have those uh, levels of those qualities stay. Uh, when we, when, so the long-term aim is to find ways to do, to do that. Um, And in terms of a transition, um, I give a lot of energy to how the body holds all of those qualities and to the awareness of the body and seeing if we can have that quality of the awake body stay there as we go about the day. And so sometimes a practice I like to do is like to feel that awake quality and really feel it and let it get bigger in your body and feel the actual qualities right there and make a kind of a bookmark of that so that you can actually go back sometime later in the day. You can say, okay, let's go back there because the body has a memory. And so I find that, that that's one way. There are a lot of different ways. That's one way to have a transition. You know, on the other hand, we're not holding on, you know, but we're trying to, because essentially the qualities of being awake are not ultimately the product of conditions, such as the conditions of meditating, but rather they're our very nature, they're our deep nature. We need these conditions, most of us, to open up in that way. But as we do that more and more, it can become uh, less and less dependent on the conditions. If that that makes some sense. The conditions meaning having quiet, not having a lot of emails at this moment, at least not accessing them, you know, and... uh, uh, having supportive, like-minded people, and so forth. That that those are we can call those conditions, 
for being at Spirit Rock, being in a quiet, beautiful place. These are conditions that help us to awaken. But ultimately, we are not depend we want to not be dependent on those conditions. Because it really is about awakening something that's deep there in you know, in our nature and not it's not a product. It's not so it's like it's the essence of what we're cultivating is in every one of us. It's not because ultimately Spirit Rock is here or meditation is here. So how to do that is the big question. <laughs> but we can, uh, so just to, you know, to go slow, to find ways of keeping that sense of awareness in your body, in your mind as you go about the day. Very helpful. So we can maybe come back to that. That's a big question. Come back to that in the time after the talk if that's helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Ready to go? I'm ready to start. Okay. Did you already start? Okay. Very good. <laughs> so we, we've started. I want to ask one question this morning and follow it. And the question is, why do we practice? So I'll invite you right now to go inside briefly and see what the response is for yourself right now. And this is just for yourself. So just first a word about what is meant by practice and the, by that I'm meaning what we do to cultivate a sense of clarity of mind, uh, openness of heart, uh, sort of the, the flowing energy of the body to live in an ethical way with others, to uh, have our lives infused, as we were exploring with that last question, to have our lives infused with the intention to awaken and to help others awaken, whatever language we use, to cultivate wisdom and compassion and to help others do that in our own way. And we use the word practice, I think, to essentially suggest that it's a ongoing learning process. 
it's a practice in the sense of a musical practice or maybe even a professional practice. It's something that is practically based. There is some kind of practical process of learning that goes on, and we have to stay with it. Those, that's, those are some of the meanings of, of practice. So why do we do this? Why have we come here? Why have many of us been doing this for years? And I've been reflecting on this in the last uh, few weeks, actually, quite a bit, just to uh, see how we understand that sense of motivation, of purpose, of aspiration. And I came up with um, 12 answers. So, having a connection with the Buddhist tradition, everything has to get turned into a list. <laughs> but that was done originally because the tradition was, an or, it was in an oral culture and people ought to remember, you know. Now it's written and it's a little different. But anyway, I came up with 12, which is actually long for, for Buddhist list. You know, most of them are four of this or five of this or at the most, 10. Sylvia was dealing with the paramis the last five weeks, and there were 10 of those, right? So here's, now we have 12, so. But I'm gonna actually talk about them briefly, so it's not gonna be a really long talk, hopefully. So, um, and I was reflecting on this also in the context of the importance and centrality of intention, of intention in practice, of, and, uh, as in the guidance that I give at the beginning of the sitting, I think there are two main senses of intention. One has to do with what we might call aspiration or what we, what the, our, our deeper intention, our longer-term intention for why we do this. could also be called motivation. And there's another sense of intention which is a little bit more moment-to-moment, activity-to-activity. What's my intention for this activity? And intention is so central to our practice. You may remember that the Buddha, when he was asked, what's the nature of karma? He said the core of that is intention. That it's by looking at intention and, and what we are intending moment to moment that we, as it were, sow the seeds of the future. That if we work with a intention and follow that up to be open, to be caring, to be wise, to be loving, that that will tend to incline us in the direction of our intentions. Not 100%, but it will tend to incline us. And, and so what we do with our intentions is crucial moment to moment. So there are these two senses of intention. One, the more, the deeper aspiration, which of course affects the moment-to-moment intention. Then what we do, what's my intention for this sitting, for this meeting, for uh, this moment, you know? And we, we, and I'll, I think what I'll do most likely is talk about that second sense next time and the first sense uh, today. Because I want to, so today I want to focus on the sense of our deeper aspirations. Why do we practice our motivation? What's really there for us? And I'll give 12 
of my reasons. And then we can hear yours, hopefully, later. And we can add, and you know, rather than have a list of 12, maybe we'll have the first list of 23 <laughs> that's ever been developed in this particular tradition. There are no list of 23 to my knowledge. So, so, okay. So, so, 12 reasons why we practice. Why do we practice? And I'll, maybe I'll say the numbers just so you can track them. Okay. Um, number one, we practice because we have a sense that there's a tremendous potential in the human heart, mind, and body. And we may feel a longing to realize that potential. Whether we understand that as a sense of uh, the possibility of a deep peace, a clarity of mind, a radiance of our being, or an open heart, that we may sense that very, very powerful, deep potential in our being. We may have had experiences or glimpses, or then they may be very frequent. We may have the sense of that quality of the open heart. One of my favorite quotations related to this comes from uh, Thomas Merton, the uh, Christian contemplative who lived at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky for the last uh, 27 years of his life. And I was actually there a little over a week ago. I went out to his hermitage. I've stayed in touch with uh, Brother Paul, who is kind of the person most like Merton at the monastery these days, and we spent a good part of the um, afternoon together. We went out to the uh, her- hermitage where, where Merton was. And um, the abbey is about 30 or 40 miles from Louisville, Kentucky. And on one of his trips there, probably you know, to a doctor or something, Merton, who was doing contemplative practice you know, all of his days, he was walking down the street in Louisville, and suddenly something just opened up for him in his mind. And he he described it like this. He said, then I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts. And he was referring to the hearts of just the people walking down the street. I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts, that which is deeper, and he used Christian language, that which is deeper than sin or their narrow selves. And he said, if only we could see ourselves that way, there would be no more war, no more cruelty. He said, I suppose the big problem would be that we would keep on bowing down and worshiping each other. You know, this part of ourselves that is, that's deeper, that we touch sometimes, and that the meditative traditions invoke, really. They invoke that potential. They remind us of that potential. And when we do retreats or sometimes in the flow of daily life, sometimes very unexpectedly we touch that. We touch that depth. In the Buddhist tradition, some of that depth of our being is associated with loving kindness and love, much like like Merton was saying, and says that there is a quality of our mind and our heart that is luminous. That is there for everyone, even people who have uh, done uh, horrible things. It's part of their nature. And so we may have a sense of that, that 
luminosity or the radiance, and we may want to bring that more into our experience. Traditionally, that first aspiration or this first motivation can be linked to the desire to awaken or other language to be enlightened is, a, is another translation. It's to touch that deep, radiant quality of our being and have it be there more and more. That may be why we practice. And kind of the other side of that is number two. The other side of that is that we, we practice because we're aware of the manifold ways that we get lost, that we're confused, that we're not radiant, that we're not luminous, that we are maybe more in a deluded state, in an unclear state. And we may be aware of that. We may be aware of how we get lost. And we may, we may want to break out of that. There's that powerful image that Plato gives in the Republic 2,500 years ago that we are all as if in a cave in the darkness, mesmerized by images that we're watching flickering on the wall that we're looking at. Behind us is a procession of people, and behind them is a fire that projects the images of the people on the wall. We see these images and we take the images to be real, as if it was television, watching the images, mesmerized by the images or the, you know, watching our computers. And the task 2,500 years ago in this uh, famous text was to turn around and to see the mechanisms of projection, as it were, of how we get lost, to understand those, and then ultimately to turn around further and go out of the cave and see reality outside of the darkness. So knowing that we get lost can actually be helpful. It can give us energy. And actually Plato also said that once we're out of the cave, we shouldn't just stay out of the cave. We should come back and help others get out of the cave. So we may practice because we have a sense that sometimes I'm lost, but also sometimes I'm found, or sometimes I know that there are other options. And related to that, the third, number three, moving right along, (laughs) number three is we may practice because we suffer, because we know that there's suffering in ourselves. And probably when we ask people, why do you come here? A lot of different reasons. Some people come to learn, to explore. A lot of people come because they've suffered. And the kind of practices of mindfulness and opening the heart and the teachings really speak to the fact that suffering is workable. Suffering is not our fate, in other words. It's not our fate to become lost in suffering. But rather, we know that there's suffering, and it can give us tremendous motivation 
to practice, to shift. Indeed, the original motivation of the Buddha was to practice because he was awakened to the fact of suffering. Remember the story that he was in this very privileged situation, protected by his parents from any kind of suffering. So the story goes. And he was, as it were, trapped in the palace. That may be a metaphor that applies sometimes to us. We're sometimes trapped by a certain level of well-being. Right? But, that, but for the Buddha, he somehow went outside the boundaries of the, of the palace. I was going to say the boundaries of the prison. <laughs> went outside the boundaries of the palace and on successive nights saw someone who was um, sick, someone who was old, someone, and he saw a corpse. And the last evening he saw a practitioner, a yogi. He saw a mendicant who was dedicated to practice. And though that, but particularly the first three evenings, there was a sense that, oh my gosh, this is how life is. There is suffering. You know, there is um, suffering connected with loss, suffering connected with uh, illness, with aging, and so forth, with death. And he said, there must be something more. And he was awakened further by the, by the practitioner. So many of us practice because we've been, we've been suffering. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, there, I was kind of impressed. I don't know if impressed was the word, but a little bit startled uh, on some of these recent retreats by there were quite a few people who said, came to the retreat and said, I don't have anywhere else to turn but to practice. You know, and they were coming from a lot of suffering and really looking to the practice. They had a lot of motivation. You know, and again, that's, uh, that may be part of our motivation. Certainly for most of us, it's, it's our motivation at times. You know, because when, we're, when we suffer, it's... Um, not a place to live from. You know, or it's said in one of the Tibetan preliminary practices, basically, one of, the, one of the core motivators for practice is to reflect on how lousy it is to suffer. And, and actually to remember, you know, you know, maybe the suffering was in the past, but to remember, to remember suffering. So that's, that's maybe uh, a motivator. A fourth reason is we practice because our minds are caught in old patterns. Kind of a variant of the last two. Our minds are caught in old patterns. And we, we in many ways, hardly recognize those patterns and practice. A lot of what we do in practice is what? We study our old persistent patterns. And we actually deinstall them. It's like those, you know, when you get a computer program, a new program, you get to install it and you have to install, uninstall the old program. Very much what we do here. <laughs> uh, the, new, the new program is open heart, clear mind, 
openness to experience, and the old program, greed, hatred, delusion, <laughs> uninstall. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We don't talk about having the installation wizard up here, you know, that would help us guide us through the process. And it, it doesn't happen as quickly as with computers, but it's, I don't know. I don't use a lot of computer metaphors, but that one, I wasn't planning to use that, but it just kind of came to me. So, but it's something about that. We, we do see our old patterns, and we, um, we actually have to study them very extensively. You know, it's not like they instantly go away. You know what I have found in my own practice? You know what kind of patterns go away pretty quickly when I've started to meditate? The really, really superficial ones. In fact, I did, and I thought, oh, my God, wonderful meditation, so cool. You know, just all these patterns are just leaving quickly. But they were the really, really superficial ones, and I didn't even know what the deeper ones were at the time. And then I learned about them, you know, and... And that's what we do. We, we actually study our old patterns. So we, I, I like to think we have to be really connoisseurs of our bad habits. Okay. That may not be what you're looking for, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> connoisseurs of our bad habits and connoisseurs of our old patterns. Experts. Experts on our old, old patterns because we have to know them well enough so that when, when they arise, we say, I see you, old pattern. And that's kind of like momentary uninstallation. I see you, old patterns. What the Buddha said in the, in the mythology and the Buddhist tradition, the old patterns are symbolized by Mara, who's almost like the Buddha's devil. And the constant dialogue that the Buddha has with Mara is, I see you. I think of this completely as seeing an old pattern or an old bad habit. We see it, and in the text it says, the, the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And it's said that when Mara was seen, he slunk away or sometimes disappeared in a puff. And that's what, we, that's what our practice can do. We see the old patterns and they slink away. Sometimes they slink away and they come back and go, ah, <laughs> scare us, right? But we, we keep on seeing them. We keep on, that's what practice can do. Number five, we practice because there is great suffering in the world and there's a great need for wise and compassionate responses. And many of us may practice for that reason, that we have a sense that this cultivation of the clear mind and open heart are not just personal, but their responses to the kind of suffering and even uh, madness that we see in the world. And that it's actually possible for our responses to shift what's happening in the world. I was, um, last night I was responding to a friend in New York who was asking about the programs of bringing mindfulness into the schools. Do you know that there have been Ten or 15,000 elementary school students who've studied mindfulness in Oakland and San Francisco. Some of the teachers have come here, right? And, and let us know what's happening. Do you know that that's happening? And I hear stories of six-year-olds who report 
you know, uh, report back to their uh, teachers, you know, saying, well, I learned that when I have a nasty thought, I can just let it go. Ha ha! So good. <laughs> you know? And I think sometimes we get um, a little cynical about the world, so-called. I know that um, I've had interesting experiences when I've done long retreats. I remember once, just quite a while ago, I, did a, I was doing a three-month retreat and I was really impressed by the kind of learning that was possible personally. And I had the thought, which stayed with me quite powerfully for, a, for quite a while, why couldn't the world also evolve into a more beautiful place? I think we get burdened, you know, it's really, we get burdened by the newspapers and some of it's because it's only, the newspapers mostly re- report the negative, they don't report, you know, it's not been the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. 15,000 elementary school students learning mindfulness, right? Not a big headline, right? So it's partly that, but we, I think we get burdened by the sense that things are so rough and we, I think, I know, uh, speak from, uh, speaking for myself, I lose sight of what's potential. It was really beautiful to have that right in the middle of a retreat, just sit, why not, you know? Why not have a sustainable world? Why is it not possible to have a world without racism? Why not? I think that is possible. That's not just um, fantasy. It's, it's human potential. And I find that um, the practice can really teach us about that more. So we may practice because we feel a responsibility to address, as it were, the larger suffering in the world. Why do we practice? We practice, um, number six, because life is short. Death is never too far away. And there can be some sense of um, wanting to move, wanting to learn, wanting to shift. You know, and, and that, in so many traditions, those reflections about life being short are consciously carried out. In the Tibetan tradition, at the very beginning of practice, at the very beginning, there's a reflection on impermanence and the reality of death. That this is something that we will have to face, that we do face, right? And it can be a very helpful reflection, not necessarily morbid, to really be in contact, you know, and so traditionally, Buddhist practitioners in Asia would go to charnel grounds, would be in contact with death. So, because we, as we know in our society, we, we often, especially the last hundred years, often take death and segregate it out from the rest of society. There's been a movement more to shift that, but it's still, still, still strong. You know, and it's really, there's a line in a, poem, a beautiful poem by 
by Mary Oliver, which is really about that sense of uh, urgency for practice. I think I'll read this. This is called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? The grasshopper, I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Why do we practice? We practice because we may have a sense of the value of practice. We may have a sense of the benefits that we may have had previous experiences in which something important came through. We learned something. We were able to be skillful with suffering. We practice often because we know that this is something that can be beneficial and we want to keep on going. So we have some faith or some confidence in qualities of mindfulness or open heart and we, we may have a sense of what supports that, you know, the uh, sense of like-minded people, community, and so forth. So we may practice because we, um, we value practice. We want to do more. We have a sense of it. We have some experience, in other words. That's number seven. <laughs> number eight, we practice because we're willing to work hard. This is not easy, especially if we stay with it. I think you know that. We all know that. You know, um, It's actually easier than the alternative, which is suffering, in, in a sense. But we, but we practice because we're willing to be with what's challenging. We're willing perhaps to be with what's unpleasant or difficult. There is a way that practice is not, not so easy. And when we keep on doing it, it can be, can be hard. To do a retreat, for example, takes us through some challenges. It's not only hard, you know, and practice is, I think, ultimately, in my, in my experience, um, there's definitely more, uh, it's, it's sweeter than it is sour, if I can say that. Or it's, the, in my experience, the pleasant outweighs the unpleasant. But in a way, we, the, the, some of the depths of the <clears throat> what we might call pleasant are opened up because of our willingness to be with the unpleasant. It's rather, rather paradoxical, right? Rather mysterious. You know, just, do you know, some of you may know the Rumi poem 
where he talks about how <clears throat> there are these two directions we can go. There is what seems like a beautiful, pleasant water, and then there's fire. And those who go into the water, the water of pleasure, choosing pleasure, they end up in the fire. And those who are willing to go into the fire end up in the water. In that poem by Rumi. And he says, people feel extremely cheated to think that they chose just going for pleasure and they end up in the fire. You know, and he says, if you are a lover of the truth, fire is your water. Let me burn a million moth wings off in the course of my practice, he says. And not easy. I was thinking of another line from a, a shaman that I heard that really stayed with me. I heard right at the beginning of my practice, you know, a long time ago, like 30 years ago, there was a shaman who I, who I, I believe I met once. I, I, met, I know I met his, his student from um, the Sierra Madre in Mexico named uh, Don Jose Matsua. And he, he, he was said in response to a question, he said, I am 86 years old. I have been following my apprenticeship as a shaman for 64 years. Yes, I have had to go into the mountains by myself for 64 years. And yes, it has been, it has been hard, but this is the way I have learned. I, can only, I have only been able to learn this because I am willing to suffer some and I'm willing to be in solitude some. And I've done this for 64 years. So we're willing, to, we practice because we're willing to work hard. And now the other side. <laughs> Number nine. Why do we practice? We practice because uh, practice points to a wonderful way of life. It points to living with more lightness, with more equanimity, with a radiant heart, with a clear mind, with an energetic body, with good friends, with cool people. <laughs> Beauty. Challenges, yes, but it has, it has, there are these amazing qualities that come with practice. You know, that we can feel a kind of integrity more and more. We can feel... Um, Again, clarity of mind, more and more the radiance of our being. Who would want anything else? What are the alternatives? Why not? And we practice because it does point to a wonderful way of life. You know, more wonderful in, in a lot of ways than what's conventionally accepted as wonderful. One Nobel Prize winner said it this way, he said, you know, I think the Nobel Prize which I have received is a kind of consolation prize. The real prize is love and living with that more and more. And even in that context, a Nobel Prize and the highest honor is a consolation prize. And related to that, number 10, why do we practice? We practice because we may have met some people that have inspired us, who seem 
to be in many ways uh, exemplary or leading lives that we would like to live. So why do we practice? We practice because we're inspired by others. You know, it could be my grandmother, my teacher, the Dalai Lama, my dog, very noble dogs. And so we may practice because we're inspired by others. We feel, we feel that they are uh, people we want to live like. Yeah. I know for me that sometimes in difficult moments, I say, you know, I don't say what would Buddha do or what would Jesus do. I say what, will, what would John do or what would Susan do. Do you do that with some of your friends? You know, you kind of channel them and say, you know, each person, each of our friends or people who we find exemplary may have a different gift, right? And some may have a gift to be with difficult situations. Some may have elegance of, of speech. And we may say, what would, what would uh, Karen say? You know, some may be courageous and so forth. And so we can um, really be inspired by these uh, exemplary qualities of people that we've actually had contact with in some way. Why do we practice? Number 11, <laughs> getting close. <laughs> Why do we practice? We practice because we may want to serve others. And if we want to serve others, we need some further training. If we really want to help others, we need to refine some of our qualities of mind and heart further. And that, again, may be our motivation. We want to help. We, want, we practice to help our life and work in the world be more developed, more capable, more, uh, more of our coming out of our depths. And that's why we practice. And the last item I had, <laughs> number 12, why do we practice? We practice because something in our hearts says yes. When we stop and listen and ask, how should I live? What should I do with my one wild, precious life? What should I do? And something in us says, practice is a great part of it. And there's a yes. That's what keeps come, people coming back. It can be a quiet yes or a... Uh, powerful, yes, but there's something that uh, is really linked with practice, which, was, which is opening up to this intuitive, uh, truthful aspect of, our, of ourselves that also gets further opened up more and more we practice. So we, it's harder and harder not to live in integrity. Have you noticed? Right? There's, we get this intuitive voice, and we were talking about this in the renewal of the ethical precepts uh, in the eight to nine period. But when we really, uh, for example, take the ethical precepts seriously, right, of it, right as we're about to do something that's not so skillful ethically, you know, like um, it's like a cell phone goes off or, or, or a sound goes off. <clears throat> Better not do that. Or do you really want to do that? Or what are you doing? or something like that. So we get this, uh, you know, our intuitions get more and more connected with our depths, with our integrity. 
and it opens up to that. I know for myself that's been, that was a really interesting process. I could, I could feel, you know, I know in my own practice that I, I could really remember a moment when I started to be more in contact with what the Quakers call the still small voice that speaks truth, you know. And I came to know it, this is my personal way I called that voice, I called it my um, no BS voice. You know, and I would say, okay, no BS voice, what, what should I do in this situation? And I would get pretty reliable information, but up until a certain point, that wasn't activated. Because I, I remember when it was activated, I was on a retreat, and this was like 32 years ago. So before that, I didn't have any contact with my intuition, no, just maybe some, but not in the same active way. And I was on this retreat, and I, was, I remember I was, I was uh, pretty young, and I was really, um, there were, I was doing walking meditation, and I was really, really scared, for some reason, of the people who were walking next to me. And I didn't know why. And I just stopped and said, why am I scared? And I really wanted a truthful answer, a really truthful answer at that moment. And I kind of got one. I mean, the answer was basically that I, I think I was scared of their power, actually. They felt like powerful beings. Something in me was scared of that. And, but, I, but more important even than the answer was that it opened up, you know, just spontaneously, and maybe you've had experiences like this, I imagine most of us have, where, where just the circumstances made it possible to access something that had truth and integrity personally. And it kind of got awakened, and I said, this is a good voice to keep around, right? And so why do we practice? It's maybe because that voice gets activated more and more, and it says, practice. It says, keep on going in this direction. It says yes to this process, to this process of opening and learning. So I think I'll stop here and just invite us to sit quietly for a moment, then we can talk together. So thank you for your kind attention, and um, we could have some discussion. And I was also thinking, um, if it's useful to have this list, I, I might be able to make copies for next week. Would anyone like that? Okay. Because okay. I, I have them here. I wrote them down, so I can give those. Any, any reflections or questions or your own, maybe something else that motivates you that wasn't on my list? I know there are a lot of them that I could have mentioned that I didn't. Why, um, why we practice, please? Well, for me, it's a um, passion for knowing the truth, like knowing more about what's really going on yeah. behind all the appearances. And 
Maybe that's the same as the second one about learning not to be yeah. lost. Yeah. Maybe that fits in there. Yeah. A passion for knowing the truth. Yeah, it probably, I think it deserves its own one. <laughs> but yeah, and how many can relate to that? I mean, yeah, this is nicely, nicely said, like a real desire to know the truth. And like in the, in the biblical phrase, know the truth and the truth will set you free. We have that, they have that uh, motivation. It can really guide us. Uh, please. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was mentioned, but, but for equanimity. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I'm not yeah. Even in my, my yeah. Yeah. To have that sense of uh, um, everything being workable, equanimity is like that heart and mind that can be with everything, and keep a certain center or a certain balance. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking if. If I do another list of 12, some of mine ha- might have to get bumped in <laughs> ter- ter- terms of the ones you were given. Um, Marty, please. Um, I practice for internal healing so that I can be simple on the inside and more responsive to all the complexities of what's on the outside and connect. Everyone here? I practice, especially, I practice for internal healing, especially um, to both for the inner process and then for the responsiveness that that gives. Yeah, nicely said. (laughs) Yeah, please. Yeah. Which is very, it's a very easy tendency because a lot of restlessness, irritability, and discontent yeah. arises in response to the conditions. So, yeah. Um, because I love people, I want to love them with all the things that are angry. Yeah. So I, pra- yeah, beautiful. Uh, everyone here? No. no. Um, I practice because of a chronic health condition. And many, if I can paraphrase, maybe, I, I practice so that I can um, be skillful, almost like with the internal and external pressures or the, the, the tendencies that I might have if I didn't practice that would, that would lead to suffering. Is that, is that fair enough? Yeah. And I practice so I can actually be skillful with those and then keep opening to what I most value. Right. Yeah, especially connections with others. Uh, please. Um, one of the things you were talking about was sitting in meditation and realizing, well, why do we have to have pleasures? Yeah. Desires? Yeah. And um, one of the things that I have been learning is how much I we define ourselves based on our role in the world. Yeah. And that if you feel inadequate or incompetent, it's always comforting to know that somebody else is more inadequate or incompetent than you are. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's the seed. Of, that's the what? That's the seed the of seed. bias. Yeah. That's the seed of prejudice. 
Yeah. And I think that's why when we live in a world with so much fear and our fear of being inadequate to deal with it, yeah. that, that that prejudice just swarms around us. Yeah. And that the reason for practice is to go into that little room yeah. inside your soul where you can just be, not be in relationship to your role in society or anything else. And if you can accept yourself for who you are, then you can accept other people for who they are. Yeah. And your name is? April. April, thank you. Is everyone here okay? <laughs> everyone? Yeah, so we practice to... Um, we practice to see our deep tendencies that lead towards um, prejudice or disconnection or what um, hurting others really. Yeah, and we we practice because we're willing to go deeply into whatever that is. That uh, whether it's you, you use the word a wound of some sorts. Yeah. Uh, a kind of a wound, a wound of, um, I mean, it's really the essence. One way we sometimes talk about our practice is that we, we look for everything that tells us, I am not enough right here in this moment with this present experience. That's really the essence of the mindfulness practice. And when we see that, we can see how uh, all the things that take us out that are sort of uh, have reactive resistance to the present moment. And we can see in many cases how that those reactions are the seeds of what lead to many, many myriad forms of uh, whether it's uh, self-judgment or views about others or actions. So that's another way I think of saying what, what you're talking about. Yeah, thank you. So it's kind of a, so this is um, uh, radical surgery, in a way, if I can use that metaphor. Um, let me ask Marty, let me go to someone who hasn't spoken yet first, please. I just have a question. Yeah. When you say practice, do you mean practice of Buddhism or practice? Because it kind of came to my mind. What, what do I mean by practice? If those 12 apply only to, in your mind, to Buddhism or mm-hmm. practice in general, whatever we practice, not only religion. Yeah. I think, I think they're, they're more general. I mean, I was, I'm saying this in the context where, like I mentioned at the beginning, what do, what do we mean by practice? Here, our practices are to be mindful, to develop an open heart, to be ethical. Well, those are pretty general, actually. You can find something can translate pretty well, and that's why I quoted Thomas Merton, can translate pretty well into other traditions. But I think, uh, but I'm giving those particularly in our context, but I think that they're pretty, they're, they could be generalized across traditions. And really it's the practice, I think whoever would agree with practice being the practice to develop uh, clarity of mind, wisdom, open heart, compassion, uh, and touch a deep sense of interdependence with others that we sometimes call love or interconnection. Anyone who could translate what I just said and, and, call, and, and, and recognize also that it's a matter of uh, the sense of practice. 
So, which, which not everyone holds or not everyone has in the same way. I think one of the strengths of Buddhist tradition is that there's a strong sense of, what do I do? How do I work moment to moment with my mind, heart, and body? That, to me, is something that I haven't seen always so clearly in other, other approaches. And so the sense of practice is particularly, how do I, like I say, how do I have uh, methods, techniques that help me, uh, that support this learning process? Really, it's another way to say it. Does that, does that get it? Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, please. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Why don't we also say our names as we speak? Okay, Diane. Yeah. Um, I think the whole list yeah. for me is like a toolkit. Yeah. And I practice varying amounts different times, but to keep that fresh and present so I can use it. Yeah. Because I do use it far more than I ever thought I would. And just the way you said, it's a roadmap yeah. for how I'm going to live my life and like it better. <laughs> yeah, to really hold, to hold that sense of direction, really crucial. It gives coherence, it can give a framework. And again, it doesn't mean being narrowly Buddhist necessarily. We each have to work that one out ourselves, but it means orienting our lives and it can give a framework. I know before, uh, well, for me, there, I, I could feel often, uh, particularly uh, about 15 or 20 years ago, when I was um, coming from having lived more in a more, more isolated places. I was living in rural Ohio and Kentucky for seven years. And I came out here and I just felt so much joy for just being with like-minded people. And it, it was almost like being in that kind of community setting supported those deeper intentions in ways that I didn't always feel when I was more on my own. You know, and it really supported them and enhanced them. And the other thing that you're pointing to, which I, I wanted to mention, you know, as you know, as we get to the end of our morning, is that how do we practice with the the set of core intentions or core uh, motivations? One way is that we work with that kind of motivation and bring it up for ourselves at the beginning of every sitting or the beginning of every session. And we do it, you know, maybe just do it for 30 seconds or a minute. We're sitting and we, and, we, and, we, and we bring to mind why we practice in your own words, your own language. In some traditions, that's done quite ritualistically. You know, that is just done every time one sits, one does that. We don't do that so much here. In, in Southeast Asia, that would be more, more common. But in Spirit Rock, we don't do it so much. So it can be something that we intentionally bring into our practice. I, I personally have a, kind of a long set of intentions, which takes about two or three minutes to say, which from time to time I've given here, right? Remember, I've mentioned that. But I try to do that four times a day to kind of connect with my intentions. You know, I do try to do it at the, the early sitting before breakfast and then in the morning and the afternoon and the evening. I don't always do it four times, but I generally do it at least two or three. And just to come back to those intentions, it doesn't mean that, and this is quite important, it doesn't mean that they feel 100% authentic. You know, when I say, we start sitting and say, I intend to develop a clear mind and radiant heart, okay? 
And that may be a really sincere aspiration. At the moment, we feel kind of out of it. And, and there can be some commentary. Someone, you know, I say that, and, and then some part of my internal commentary says, sure. <laughs> right. And right. familiar, some happens sometimes. And, and that's okay. And actually, we have to just let that sure just come and go. Because it doesn't mean that we have to feel 100% like it's totally strong and, you know, like Superman or something. But it just, just to invoke that intention um, has an influence. It inclines us. It, and it's important, again, that it, 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 we do our best. But just invoking it, even, and even if there's some counter voice or even if it feels lukewarm, it's helpful. And that, that's a way to practice, to do that, uh, especially the beginning of a sitting, uh, or maybe at other times during the day. You know, I try to do it like just kind of, um, just do like sometimes a short sitting, maybe in the afternoon, and just come back to that. So it's, um, or you can, you know, maybe you do it when you're driving or something. You know, but just to come back in your own way, in your own words, to what the deeper aspiration is. And have that be a regular practice, and just see how that, how that works. And so I really invite those of you with whom this has some resonance to do that for the next week, and then we can come next week and see how that was. And probably many of you are already doing this, something like this, but the, how many would like to have a little more of that deeper motivation be for the next week? Okay. Um, so I'll invite you to do that in your own way and experiment. You know what I love from the, um, the listing of reasons. You know, I was taking notes on the first, then they were just getting too many. But I, we probably add them all up. Now we got 19 at least, right? <laughs> A list of 19. So um, what I love is the creativity and finding how each of us do it. It's really, uh, really important. So I think we'll end here. And just let's just take a minute or so to finish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.